0: Cutting edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello, and thanks for connecting to this new episode of Quantcast. Mauro Cesar here speaking today with Jean Philippe Bouchot, chairman of uh, Paris based hedge fund Capital Fund Management, CFM, and a member of the Académie des Sciences. Hi, Jean Philippe, and thank you for joining me for this podcast. Hello. Our readers, especially those um, interested in BISIDE research, are surely familiar with your name and your works. Uh, a few of your hundreds of uh, research papers have been published in RISC, and uh, that led you to be awarded Quant of the Year and BISIDE Quant of the Year by RISC in 2017 and 2018. Uh, now, uh, just to give a bit of context to and to introduce the new collaboration between us, um, the idea of this podcast came after you accepted to be risk columnist for the next six months, uh, of which we are uh, delighted and very grateful, and we're happy to have your your views published with us. Uh, in in fact, the first column is online now, and it discusses agent-based models in finance. Um, now we'll go back to agent-based models in uh, in a minute, but first I'd like uh, I'd like to ask you if you could introduce briefly uh, CFM and tell us what type of hedge fund it is and what markets it invests on. In.
1: Yes, certainly. So CFM has been launched in 1991, so it's a now nearly 30-year-old hedge fund, uh, which I think is uh, quite remarkable in itself, uh, of course, to survive that long in a very competitive industry. (laughs) Uh, It's Paris-based, which is also a kind of an anomaly uh, in a way. Um, It's a quant fund. Um, So it was created by Jean-Pierre Aguilar in 91. And I joined in 94. Uh, We created a research group then called Science and Finance that later merged with uh, CFM. So it's it's fully uh, fueled by uh research is coming from hard sciences uh, physics math uh, computer science uh, biology and so on and uh it's trading um internationally on all futures markets uh, stock markets um, option markets across the world um and it you know it runs several types of quant strategies uh moving slowly towards other types of strategies maybe we'll address that a little bit later
0: yeah, in fact, I'd like to know a little more about the investment strategy that you employ as CFM. Um, can, can you generalize and tell me uh, what type of quant investments you follow?
1: Well, you know, quant investment in the traditional sense is you look at any kind of data you have. Uh, of course, price based, that was the beginning, but uh, fundamental type of data, weather data. Uh, inventory data now, uh, you know, machine learning based uh, natural language processing on news, on on announcements, anything that that you can put your hands on uh, can be used to create a a trading signal uh, that trades in the markets that I've uh, discussed earlier. So stocks or futures or options. And uh, the idea is, is to have as many different types of strategies as possible again ranging from trend following on different timescales mean reversion on different timescales uh, cross asset correlations these are technical models but also all kinds of anomalies surrounding announcements uh, earning announcements news and so on so it, it's it's a big zoo of, of different strategies so i guess that you know, it's like um, uh, driving a, a car. You, you don't necessarily know what's going in the engine in detail, but what you know is that it's been built by engineers, and it's it's a little the same analogy uh, with the kind of strategies that, that that we're using. Each of them is has a very low signal to noise ratio, but in aggregate, uh, it's trying to extract something from the markets.
0: Okay, so most of the strategies you have in place are for uh, detecting detecting signals.
1: Yeah, and the, in the traditional way, a signal is based on some kind of statistical correlation between past whatever and future returns, and uh, and so it, it's it's mostly based on backtests, and and again, that's something that we might speak about later. Uh, maybe the, the future of quant is going to move away from this traditional way of uh, building strategies, i.e. based on on, on simulation, backtest simulation on past data. Uh, but, you know, this is something that is only starting to grow at CFM.
0: And, uh, and now, indeed, we we go and uh, and talk about ADM, uh, agent-based models. Uh, in your first column, you explained that they are best suited for analyzing complex systems. Uh indeed the the column is titled to make sense of complex systems sending the agents. well um, let, let's start from the very beginning. Not everyone uh, is familiar with uh, uh ABMs. Uh, could you first explain what what they are and how they can be used?
1: Yes, so ABM is a rather vague and generic name for many different types of of models actually. I mean uh in terms of their application, they can range from epidemiology, which is, of course, very topical right now, to uh, physics, finance, uh, granular media, uh, crowd dynamics, economics, and so on. And, and the idea is really to try to uh, model the system, whatever type of system I've just mentioned, starting from its uh, unit elements. So it would be a trader in in a financial market, it would be a household or a firm in an economy, or it would be a human being uh, trying to model uh, the coronavirus uh, type of propagation. And and the idea is to actually simulate the behavior of these individual units based on uh, rules that sometimes can be uh, justified from actual empirical data, uh, trying to know how people behave, or they can be inferred from self-reflection on what you would do as an individual in such and such circumstance, or they can be built on uh, the behavioral literature. Uh, Anyway, these agents are endowed with uh, simple rules, or actually not that simple, but what's interesting in agent-based models is really how complex behavior can arise, even if you endow agents with rather simple rules, and I'll go back to that later. But in the in the case of uh, financial markets or economic systems, it's remarkable to see how much richness you can extract from agents that actually behave in a in a rather simplistic way. Um, but you know, I, it's really interesting to have this type of uh, models because. Um, as I argue in my column, these emergent complex behavior are sometimes um, completely unreachable using simple-minded models. Like if you replace the whole economy by a representative agent, as it's called in in the economic literature, then there's a lot of of, um, effects that exist in the real world that you'll never grasp with uh, these simplified models. And, and so they can appear as black swans. They can really be outside the realm of your imagination. And it's really by making these uh, agent-based simulations that you see some phenomena emerging from uh, this, this kind of mixture of different people doing different things that sometimes you would never have imagined. And one of the striking example that, um, I give in the column and, and many examples of that kind exist is is how fireflies for example synchronize I mean this is a, a very spectacular phenomenon that has uh, uh, befuddled people for 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 decades uh, uh, to observe you know thousands and thousands of fireflies being able to synchronize and flash at the same times across miles you know uh, this looks so bizarre that um, that at some site you you know people were thinking is there a, a, a chief agent uh, synchronizing all these fireflies uh, a maestro or um, all these effects appear uh, spontaneously and what you what agent-based models are useful for is that actually by endowing these fireflies with simple rules um, you can see this phenomenon arising and so. Uh, So my plea for the use of agent-based model is really that I see them as as kind of scenario generators. They are able to open your eyes on things that you wouldn't have necessarily imagined could be possible and that actually arise in in your system. So, of course, this is important for economics uh, where uh, traditional models completely fail to reproduce or to imagine that um, endogenous crisis can, can exist. Like 2008, the 2008 crisis was absolutely outside the realm of uh, traditional macroeconomic models. And in the case of financial markets, um, this is actually going to be the, the theme of my next column. You can understand how uh, liquidity crisis, for example, crashes uh, can occur endogenously due to very simple uh, rules that agents might follow. For example, market makers or high-frequency traders use these simple rules to, to make the markets. And you can show that in some circumstances, even if nothing really uh, spectacular happens in the world, you might enter a kind of uh, destabilizing spiral that leads to, to to crashes. So again, these things, you know, are very interesting as as a kind of general um, way to envisage the, the possible states of the world. But my belief is that uh, the next generation of these agent-based models will be much more predictive. And And one hope is that one can actually, uh, coming back to my previous comment about, you know, using only back tests and past data, then maybe these agent-based models at one point will become uh you know, rich enough or enough understood. I mean it's 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 a it's a science in the case of financial markets and economics, it's a very early stage of, of, of the of the science and we need to learn a lot about how to handle these agent based models. But my hope is that we can use these agent based models to make models that trading models that won't be back tested, but that will be based on kind of some some more fundamental um uh, principles to describe how the economy as a complex system might evolve
0: and uh, to understand how they are uh, made in your case so obviously to simulate a financial market uh, the agents in your case will be traders i suppose but um other other entities other players as well is there regulatory uh, players in it uh, risk managers risk events
1: yeah i mean of course agent based models, as I said, is a very vague uh, basket in which you can put a lot of eggs. but um, you can have you know agent based models with only traders. Uh, but of course you can have uh, you can you can diversify the type of traders. you can have uh, institutional traders, day traders, market makers, high frequency traders. you can mm-hmm. add also, as you mentioned, Uh, regulators that can step in and i mean it's it's nearly infinite and the problem as i was mentioning is that these agent-based models tend to be so um, flexible that at one point you need to stop because uh, modeling is not about reproducing exactly the world i mean it's, it's always this idea of you, you don't want to represent the territory with a map as big as the territory itself because otherwise the map is just yeah. completely useless so you need to retain you know as much uh the richness of the of the model as, as necessary but not more and and that's the the thing that we the, that we really need to learn about these agent-based models is how complex do they need to be to be a realistic and be precise enough so that you can you know, generate what you want to generate and avoid, uh, you know, biases avoid doing things that are, um, outside the, 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 the scope of what you want to do.
0: And, uh, what shape do they take in your setting? Are they, uh, trading rules? Are they sort of, uh, utility functions that they have to maximize?
1: Well, this again, you can, play with uh, of course you can try to make your agent as smart as possible uh it it's actually quite complex to make them as rational as uh, economic theory would like them to be because uh, you know in the traditional setting agents need to anticipate the, the, the future and the probability distribution of all the states in the future and because these, this probability distribution is itself going to be affected by how agents behave this can be very messy computationally but the idea is actually to not to do, not to go in that direction but rather as as i was saying earlier to try to endow them with simple rules that are uh, rich enough to reproduce what you want to reproduce but simple enough to um, to be tra- to remain tractable both uh, at a numerical level and maybe also if you want to understand the model using more analytical, uh, mathematical techniques. So for example, you can have, if you, one kind of agent-based model that we've looked at, as I was mentioning, is uh, trying to understand liquidity and liquidity crisis in the markets. And In this case, you can have very simple rules for people wanting to buy and sell. Um, So having actual aggressive traders who want to uh, consume liquidity, and uh, less of i mean patient traders who provide liquidity market makers if you want and uh, again as i said uh, even if you neglect a lot of complexity and a lot of uh, sophistication in the rules that agents in real markets may use you're already able to produce quite a lot of useful things like you know how a liquidity crisis can occur but also how uh, trading can impact prices in financial markets. All these things you can reproduce with a pretty limited amounts of uh, of ingredients at the agent level. Then you can move to lower time scales and, and for example, a- endow your agents with simple strategies, but you know actual strategies that people use, like momentum, trend following strategies, mean reversion strategies, and put all this in 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 the soup of, of um, agents and see what kind of behavior um uh, emerges in the sense of how what what time series that you're a, are you able to generate um and this again uh, is quite interesting because it reduces, um again with simple rules uh, a lot of things that are actually seen in real financial markets
0: and you mentioned at the beginning about um, the uh, ability of these models to capture black swans that um, standard quant- uh, quantitative methods would not see. But my question here is, how do you make sure that a ABM doesn't doesn't enter into an explosive trend and actually see black swans where they are not?
1: Yes, but you see, that's exactly where they're useful. Um, I think we should, and that's a little bit the the object of my column uh, that was published today, as you were mentioning earlier, is that for me, an agent-based model has a different uh, status, scientific status from the traditional models. Uh, for me, an agent-based model is more a scenario generator. So of course, sometimes you put these ingredients in your model, and you find crazy stuff. And what's interesting is that your the, the research process doesn't stop there. It's it, you, you observe your crazy stuff, you observe your explosion uh, in your example, and you say, aha, where does that come from? And you start thinking about the world that you've created. And this is an incredibly interesting intellectual exercise, to try to understand, okay, I've put simple rules in my agent-based model, and now I see something that was completely unexpected. So why why is that? So where does it come from? So the trivial thing is that it comes from a bug. And this, of course, happens. You can code things as uh, carefully as as you can, and you always start doing bugs. So you, you should eliminate the bug. Once you've eliminated the bug and the, the the phenomenon is still there, then you should go back to uh the ingredients that you've put in your agent-based model and try to understand, you know, which one is generating the instability. And once you've identified the mechanism, the feedback loop through which the instability occurs in your agent-based model, then you should think, okay, is that realistic? Does that is is there a way that this exists in the real world or is that really based on a stupid assumption that I've done? And, And now what's interesting is that you have to make a judgment call. And the world is complex and you cannot avoid at one point to make a judgment call. And so what you have to do is to gauge whether your simple assumptions have something to do with reality or not. But what's interesting is that what happens more often than not, is that you realize that these explosions, if you, as you've called them, you were not expecting them, and they actually occur because the dynamics of the system in, in, captures a feedback loop that you haven't thought about, but is absolutely there. And when you think about the world, you think, okay, well, all of this makes sense. And I should consider the possibility that this effect exists. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's a non-probabilistic statement. It doesn't tell you what's the probability for it to exist. It just tells you, listen, if you really believe that the world is following these simple rules, that's something that you haven't expected, but it still exists. So please be careful. So, you know, can you, for example, introduce some regulation in the real world and or in your agent-based model that, alleviates this instability, uh, how to do that. So again, I think what's interesting about this way of doing science is that it generates possibilities. It generates possibilities that our human imagination is often unable to uh, to, to, to envisage. And once you're there, then again, it's, it's not you know a question of whether it's going to happen with high probability or not. It's a question of, of there is this black swan there. What do you want to do with it? Now, you know, the black swan is under the spotlight. Um, do you consider it as a, as a fluke of your modeling assumption, or do you want to take it seriously? And I think this this whole process of thinking about the world in that way is, is very, very fruitful, because it allows you to consider scenarios that you, uh, you know, naively based on traditional models where you write down, I don't know, geometric Brownian motion or, or even more sophisticated models, these things that are based on uh, calibration on past data, they will absolutely fail imagining such possibilities. But if you you know, drill uh, deeper and go a uh, level down, then you realize that the ingredients that make the markets or the ingredients that make uh, the economy as a whole, they contain such possibility and so you should take it seriously.
0: Interesting, interesting. So it is, a, it is a tool for not just trading, but for risk management
1: as well. Yeah, oh yeah. You
0: observe what a possible scenario might unfold in, in the future
1: with absolutely. any probability. Yes, um, I think that, that actually you're absolutely right. The, 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 the main uh, application for the moment, I mean, I'm not speaking 10 years time, but for the moment, the main application is, is about risk management, is about identifying these instability directions of your system.
0: Okay. You anticipated that your next column will be on market liquidity. Um my question, what what do you think is the role of hedge funds in uh, uh in the liquidity that we observe in the market?
1: Yeah, that that's a traditional question. Uh you know, what's the use of hedge funds in general and what impact do they have on liquidity? I think the problem is that um the, the the moniker Hedge Fund itself is pretty vague again. I mean, I I spoke about vagueness of agent-based models, which is a big bag in which you can put all sorts of different things. And in a way, Hedge Fund is the same. I mean, you can have, you know, Hedge Fund is a a zoo and in a zoo you find find animals of all sizes and colors. Um, And so I think it's difficult to answer that question in general uh, because, Some strategies are definitely providing liquidity. Other strategies are more consuming liquidity. Sometimes the same strategy is actually, uh, you know, one day providing liquidity, the next day removing liquidity. Um, Also the the question of liquidity is is not very well posed in the sense that, you know, are we speaking about high frequency liquidity or are we speaking about lower frequency liquidity? it's 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 a whole you know uh, it, it is a research program in itself to understand what people actually mean by liquidity and uh so i would say in general you know hedge funds like cfm they're trading on time scales that are maybe a few hours at the fastest and a few years at the slowest so you know, I was speaking about the variety of different strategies mm. that CFM is using. You see already between a three, a three hours and, and three years, there's a huge uh, span of time scales. And net-net, um, uh, it's, it's very, very hard to know uh, what is the, the impact on market quality. Uh, I think that, um, you know, it's Hedge funds, I would say, in general, are not intrinsically uh, more uh, toxic or less toxic to market liquidity than any uh, trader. And you know, retail traders or institutional traders, we all contribute to this big um, market that our financial markets, uh, either providing or um, the, the the problem. I think the real problem uh, is market stability more than liquidity and uh, market stability um really requires a diversity of opinions once opinions tend to uh polarize in one direction then there's a problem of uh what that you can call liquidity but that actually is uh, stability and the question here is whether or not hedge funds tend to use crowded strategies, and of course this is a this is a very important question because crowded crowded strategies fast degrade uh, the performance the average performance of the strategy itself, so it's bad. And second, can lead to these uh, deleveraging spirals. Um, so I think that some hedge funds tend to overcrowd on some strategies. Others, uh, because they know that uh, using a crowd strategy leads to uh, less profitability of that strategy, they tend to always innovate and, and try to, you know, be as decorrelated as possible as the rest of the crowd. Um, so I think there's no one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, there's uh, a lot of different types of, of things that can happen. And, you know, if you come back to this question of market stability, what's interesting is that uh, surprisingly, maybe, but uh, if you look at data, that's clearly the case. Markets are not more stable or less stable in the 21st century than they were in the beginning of the 20th century, for example. So um, what's interesting is to see that, you know, people tend to, because of... uh, human biases often they tend to actually all react in the same way Um, even without quant uh, uh, hedge funds market crashes did exist they repeatedly occurred uh, much before any quant strategy was around so for me it's it's again an ecology of many different types of, of traders that make up the market um, some may be bad, some may be good, but overall, uh, the question is really market stability, and this is a collective thing. It's not an individual thing. Well, except, of course, if you have, you know, uh, uh, just mistakes. I mean, fat fingers or or night capital mm-hmm. type of bugs in, in, in the program where one single firm can be responsible for destabilizing des- the market. But that's, you know, Usually it's very costly to do that. So uh, people tend to avoid making these uh, yeah. silly mistakes. Yeah, so are not that, the yeah. Right. So I would say that the the, the main concern is about collective, collective behavior. And hedge funds can enter uh, toxic um, uh, collective behavior, that's for sure. But, you know, human beings haven't waited for hedge funds to enter these Crazy panics and and manias and you know the, the books called uh, manias, panics and bubbles, uh, dating back from the 19th century, I guess.
0: And do you think the hedge fund industry is still dealing with the bad name they gained in the uh, 2009 crisis?
1: Well, you know, I've been in the hedge fund business for now uh, 30 years, well, 25 years. And as far as I remember, hedge fund always had a bad name. Uh, so, um, and again, I think it's it's really due to the fact that um, it's uh, it's a it's an ill-defined concept, uh, hedge fund, in the sense of uh, you know being often market neutral and uh, uh, having an objective of absolute strategy rather than than relative strategy compared to the market um that's a maybe well defined and high fees maybe that's a that's that's a definition of hedge fund but within this definition people do so so much so, so the, the 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 range of strategies that are used are, is so wide that um uh you know i think that you can find predatory hedge funds that are discretionary and that have a completely different type of business model and a completely div- different way of, of entering the markets from, uh, say, a market neutral quant type strategy that tends to be extremely diversified, that as to uh, do stealth trading and, and never uh, enter big positions and so on. So, yeah, I, I would say that financial markets as a whole have about. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a bad <laughs> reputation. That um, is true. Uh, so sometimes hedge funds bear the brand, other times, uh, uh, high-frequency traders bear the brand. Uh, Frankly speaking, I think that the crisis in 2008 had actually nothing to do with hedge funds. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean.
0: Uh, um, okay, leaving liquidity aside for now, um obviously we started talking about machine learning and uh, um uh non-linear modeling earlier. What type of machine learning do you employ at CFM? Uh, what type of functions do you uh do, you do using machine learning?
1: Well, you know machine learning is um linear regression is the simplest example of of machine learning. So uh, in a way, people have been doing machine learning uh, forever. Um, now that the, the, the more recent incarnation of machine learning is all these things like uh, deep learning and uh, and natural language processing and, and all these more fancy stuff. And of course, we're we're trying to keep uh, the state of the art level on all these developments. Uh, which are very interesting also from an intellectual point of view. And clearly, you know, people don't really understand why machine learning in this more recent exception of the term even works. Um, So you were speaking about unwanted effect in agent-based models earlier. Clearly, agent machine learning uh, can lead to uh, unwanted effects as well and this is uh, you know beginning to be well known that sometimes you can fool the machine by just changing one pixel in a in a picture um and and so there's a lot of interesting uh, really you know, very state of the art and and and, um, and and complex type of research that's done as we speak on why why is machine learning working and what should we be aware of um so having said that we're using machine learning in all compartments um you know portfolio construction uh, uh, asset, uh, model allocation execution uh, uh, alpha generation i mean signal generation all these aspects uh, clearly uh, all these aspects deal with um, big data uh, or or not so big data but uh, machine learning is a discipline is a tool more than uh, than a specific technique uh, that allows you to rationalize a lot of things that were maybe done more manually in the past uh you know all these ideas like cross validation for example that allow you to um, fix parameters in a more rational way than just uh, choosing one of them based on past performance Uh, all these things have become uh bread and butter for for most quant hedge funds i guess so in that sense i don't think that cfm is very different from at least the more sophisticated hedge funds
0: and have you recently let's say replaced a uh, what you could define a standard and a classical quant finance uh, model with a non-linear like a non-parametric like machine learning solution
1: well in general we we don't really replace things we add um we replace when something is clearly wrong um but you know, even if two models are similar, uh, they're always slightly different. Um, So imagine that you have a parametric model that works, that is in production for, you know, years, and that has no sign of clearly degradating. Um, And then you find a more non-parametric a uh, way of, of reproducing the same effect with uh, machine learning techniques, then what are you going to do? Uh, one temptation is to say, oh, machine learning is better, so I'm going to throw away the, the simple non-parametric non-param- uh, model and replace it by the new trendy machine learning. I think, you know, from a kind of general diversification point of view, uh, you should actually choose both, to, to keep both. And that's that's what we tend to do. We're adding, uh, we're not removing.
0: Okay. Um, general question, but what is the next challenge for systematic funds? Uh, I'm not talking about profit survival, but more technically on um, on uh, the quantitative side of uh, the management. Oh, so,
1: there's there's a lot actually, because um, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of new data sources that come out every day. So I think that one of the biggest challenge is to keep up with the flow of new data vendors and and new data sources that can be analyzed uh, is to imagine new techniques to deal with this massive ocean of data that, that floods us and and to extract value from it. And you know, it's a it's a real challenge because you can if you don't have the right techniques and if you don't have the right hunch in a way, then you're going to chase unicorns and uh and try to make something out of uh the million I, I mean I'm exaggerating, but the million data vendors that try to to sell you data, and um, and most of the data is actually going to be useless. Mm-hmm. So just th- to be able to, to cope with uh, this flow of data and actually focus on the one that's or the ones that are important and useful um, is is in itself a huge challenge it's a huge challenge because it takes a lot of resources it's it's costly and uh and you should do it right um so so i see that as as a big challenge and this encompasses what i was saying earlier about you know machine learning tools do we understand them uh are they trustworthy should we be aware of their limitations and what kind of limitations you know you you could have bad surprises by using black boxes mm-hmm. uh, and so so this is a, a huge intellectual and um, and challenging uh, operation um i think everything that concerns liquidity price impact uh, all this is hugely important because it governs costs but it also governs as we were mentioning earlier Market stability. Um, you know, we strongly believe at CFM that markets move because people do things. Uh, of course, there's the, the traditional economic way of thinking that prices move because there are news, because new stuff uh, gets announced. And this is one part of the volatility, but a huge part of the volatility is actually endogenous, in our view. And I think it's a view shared by more and more people. So we need to understand how people behave. And so we're back on the agent-based model, uh, chapter. So developing these, uh, agent-based models to really have a kind of, uh, uh way of, um, of monitoring and, and predicting what's the most probable, uh, evolution of people's thinking and people's behavior in the years, months or days to come depending on your trading horizon is clearly something that uh, that is a research direction that we have on our mind Uh, and then you know there's a lot of micro uh, challenges that are there and that pop up all the time there's a lot of things to still understand on the technical side you know it's surprising to see that with the same set of data that we've been looking at for years you know, market prices for the S&P 500 and, and its components, this is not that big a data set and it's always the same data set. We, all, we, we only have one. By the way, agent-based models would be a great way to generate uh, uh, markets that never existed and that's uh, another chapter that uh, that we talked indeed, about. Indeed, in we discussed market. in the past yeah, and uh, yeah. we published the feature and, with and you uh, have a with your comments on, that on that in RISC, yep. So. Um, our auditors may have a look at that if they're interested. But anyway, what I was saying is that it's surprising to see that even after, as I said, we've been in the business for 25 more or, or so years, and we're still discovering things that you know were in the data sets that we've been looking at for years and that we hadn't seen before. So it's surprising, right? And the, and it it again. Pinpoints the complexity of, the, of these financial time series and how much, how subtle correlations can exist uh, that you know you can miss for many years and and then suddenly realise that they are there. So uh, I think that even on the purely you know uh, price-based technical stuff that we've been doing for years, there's still a lot to be discovered. And what you learn. Um, by being uh, for a long time in the the business is that the longer you look at time series, the more you're prone to overfitting, of course, and that's the danger. But at the same time, when you understand better your subject, when you understand better what you're looking at and what the mechanisms underlying the phenomenon that you're studying, uh, the, the, the better you understand these mechanisms. Uh, the more you're able to extract value for, from very weak signals. So things that you wouldn't have believed in at all or that you wouldn't even have noticed 20 years ago because your eye is sharpening with time, you're able to grasp you know, very subtle effects that, of course, may be noise, may be fluke, but with experience, you 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 start to learn that some of these effects are are real and you can bet on them, and I think it's it's a real um, interesting experience to be in the business for a long time because you it's like wine you know you you, you see that that you you you're getting better at what you're doing.
0: Nice analogy. So ESG, I believe, uh, is one of the uh, topics you're going to cover in one of the next columns. Is it a topic mostly relevant for the retail investment houses, or are hedge funds adapting their strategy to incorporate this principle and investments?
1: Yes, I think that it's it's a very important uh, topic also for hedge funds. And what, but what's interesting, thinking uh, back again to what we were discussing earlier, is that in this case, clearly tomorrow won't be like yesterday. I mean, uh, there are going to be major disruptions and major changes because in a way it's going to be self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, people are going to invest in ESG and ESG type of investments are going to be affected by by these investments themselves and therefore the whole thing is going to change so it it is a case where we know that um, there's a lot of quantitative analysis to be done on you know supply uh, input output networks for example of firms Uh, of course you inherit your degree of uh, carbon uh, uh, consumption or production uh, from your customers or from your suppliers. So you know you, you're, you're not necessarily green or brown by yourself, but you're green or brown in a network of other uh, firms. So all this network science is uh, is clearly going to be extremely useful to describe uh, and, and anticipate uh, the evolution of. Um, of of, uh, greenness or brownness of firms Um, so it is a quantitative subject but it is a subject that can't be backtested because or maybe it can be backtested on a very limited number of years so uh, clearly you can't use data from the 60s to understand what uh the ESG investment is going to be in the in the in the, in the 2020s uh, so we're entering a new way of doing quant um, research which is going to be more and more based on uh, in a way doing good science without even looking at returns trying to understand uh, exactly as I said about AVM trying to understand the mechanisms trying to understand you know having a model of the world and then betting that the your model of the world is consistent and following trying to follow the consequence of of this of this modelization. And this will you know indicate some bets that you want to take and there's no way to back test these bets because uh this transition to a, a, a more uh a, you know an environmental friendly uh World has not happened in the past, and uh, so so it is going to be a real challenge. Uh, we discussed about challenges earlier. It's going to be a new challenge. That's that's really interesting, and I think hedge funds have and quantitative hedge funds in particular have really a card to play there.
0: Absolutely, I'm looking forward actually to to read the column you're gonna you're gonna write on ESG. Uh, expanding this uh, uh, this topic and Jean-Philippe this is what I wanted to ask you today Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me for this uh, conversation was very interesting indeed
1: thank you very much and I'm really happy about our collaboration and looking forward to uh, having to write these columns for the next uh, five months
0: thank you and thanks everybody for listening